So now that we're back to everybody, thank you again, our sponsors. And we're, we're actually here with the man himself, Eric Copper. We'll be turning back to right where we left off. We all want to know, of course, about the Rector's Cut. And, but along the way, you gave us Justin Strauss and all the success that you had up to that moment and Death Mix and all that wonderful stuff. Now the 90s are full. And I remember you had a hit with RuPaul. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, uh, we, I guess it was around 90, 91, or all around the same time as uh, just, it was, yeah, just after the whistle song. Um, I got a, uh, a call to, there was a couple of demos by this artist named RuPaul, and I was friends with Larry T already. I knew Larry, and Larry, he, a lot of people don't realize he co-wrote Supermodel. And um, Tommy Boy came to me to produce a couple of of these demos. They like what I did. They had me write the rest of the album, and and uh, man, yeah, I mean, look at was today, uh, Eric. Was, look at a lot of fun. today. Look how big RuPaul is now. I know. We actually did a track um, a few years ago that did really well, and we're actually just talked about doing another one. So, um, God bless you. Is, is still. I mean, he's created such a wonderful empire that, and it's all on positivity. And, you know, I mean, he is, he's a very special person and a very, very talented one as well. That we didn't have like auto tune and stuff like that back then. So he was singing and he can really sing. Um, Where did you do that record out of? Is that your spot or you did a DMD reworking? That was at, I did it on my spot. There was a couple of things that were already on tape that I did at INS. Maybe two or three tracks. House of Love was one of them. But all the 90% of the album was done like on my little uh, eight track. And then I would fly the eight track stuff into the sampler and we'd run live from there. You, that's how it usually went. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, yeah, at the time, we were doing, I was also doing working with Peter Rauhofer, someone who was a huge influence on dance music. I mean, yeah, at, at, in his earlier career, he was very influenced by David Morales and the Def Mix sound. And you could hear it on the early Club 69 stuff. But he made it his own. And then he created what was kind of, you know, the precursor to um, what ended up becoming EDM. His, he had that big room sound. But he always kept a house feel to it, unlike a lot of people who were doing the circuit stuff, who who Eric, went that other direction. Eric, he always kept a house feel to it. Eric, yeah. Why are you talking about me? <laughs> <laughs> Man, yeah. You're real funny. You're very. Oh, he, was, he had the driest sense of humor, man. <laughs> I I remember. He used to spend so sometimes he would spend weeks on his mixes and labels would be driving him crazy. When is it going to happen? And he goes, you know, it'll happen when it's ready. And I would, and I would, and I would play him a mix. I go, I did. I would joke with him. Yeah. I, you know, I knocked it out in two days. He goes, it sounds that way. <laughs> right. <laughs> he was joking, obviously, but he had, the, he had a great sense of humor. He really did. But um, yeah, the root getting back to the root thing. Yeah, give us. Um, it, was, it was around the same right time. That's why I. That's why I kind of equate the the, the two projects, the Club sixty nine and RuPaul's first album. We did them within the 
I remember they were at the same studio. I lived in that in that um, apartment for maybe three years. So it all happened around the same time. For I flew the coop and moved up to Connecticut. But we want to talk about the era of Sound Factory because let me paint the picture everybody too. I remember Frankie had just got the residency not too long. Him and David and Satoshi were doing this residency at Sound Factory. Junior had, Junior was pushed out. Frankie took over. And I remember going one night and I remember him telling us, I got this new track with this flute. And, and, and he says, I'm going to, I'm going to turn you bitches out with this. Just like that. He said to me, all of us. I remember. And I was like, I'm thinking anyway, the room went dark. He plays this with the flute beginning and it was 20 minutes of hearing him unveil this new song. We still didn't know what it was. We just heard bop, 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 da-da-da-da. We're like, what in God's name is this? I remember just being there ossified, not knowing that he was, that you guys were working on it still. It was still a work in progress. So at that point, he was just testing it out for the first time. Now, from your side, Tell us how that track happened, the whistle song. Yeah, I'll tell you exactly how it happened. Um, I, it was, I'm trying to think, in 19, I guess it was the fifth anniversary of Def Mix's party at the Red Zone. Because, yeah, it must have was in 1990, and they probably solidified as a company in 85. That would have made sense. Maybe it was four years. I don't know. I forgot whatever it was. It was Maybe their anniversary. Second, I think it was 87. They started because no, because Morales. So it was three years. Then it was three years. The first big record Morales mixed. I remember that really broke out. Was in that imagination instinctual dress. Yeah. Yes. That Lee John hated that he did that because he was off key. When we talk about <laughs> off key, because I remember Lee. Yeah, John, yeah, the key. Of I hate sticks, yeah. and it became a hit for him. But go ahead. <laughs> right there, we go. So, so we got, so let's say it was the third. I, I guess it was the third year anniversary of Ethnics. Right, year. three years at that point. Yeah. You're, you're right, actually. Yeah. Five was too long because it wasn't 85 they yet developed. Yeah, you're right. So it was it was the third year anniversary at the Red Zone. And I remember it might have been the first time I've actually heard Frankie play. And he ever blew me away. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Because we'd only been working together for six months or something like that. And I really hadn't, I wasn't a big clubber. I was more, I was so busy in the studio. <laughs> I was, you know, I didn't have a lot of time for recreation. Um, and when I did go out, I was going out with people, with my friends already. I'd go to see Justin play, I'd go to see Mark Damon's play. You know, I was hanging out with them. So it wasn't like I would just randomly show at a club because I heard it was cool. I was, you know, hanging out with friends. So it was the first time I think I had heard Frankie. And I remember hearing this record. Um, and I remember asking Satoshi, what was what this record? And he told me it was, he goes, it's logic. I'm like, logic? It turned out to be the warning by logic. And that record just stuck with me. And if you listen to the whistle song and that, they both use the major seventh chords kind of going back and forth, as does um, this piece by Eric Satie, Gymnopedie, which also has those same kind of chord patterns, which those chord, I love my major sevenths. And those are happy chords, the major seventh. They're, the yeah, they're, they're, they're kind of melancholy and happy at the same time. They're, they're uplifting. They're pretty, let's say. Um, 
And uh, there, there was that track. So after hearing Frankie play that, I don't think he played this other track, but there, uh, uh, Justin had played me a track called The Poem, Bobby Condors. Oh, yeah. Peter, Peter Dow doing a keyboard flute song. I kind of, I like that record. I thought it was amazing. I mean, you pop up that record on the right time now, people still go. Oh, it's agreeable. That was a New York record, underground record, as underground as it gets, New York. Exactly. And people still have the Muda Baruka, the, um, the acapella that they'll drop. And more people associate it to the poem than they do, well, to, to the uh, Bobby Condors record, because they don't know the original, you know, Muda Baruka record. But anyway, um, so after <clears throat> a day or two after hearing, you know, of kind of recuperating from this event, we also performed there. Um, we had Peter Schwartz on keyboards, myself. Uh, I forgot. I think we were doing some Robert Owen stuff at the time. I think his album was just breaking. I think we worked on Robert's before Frankie's record. I think that's, I forgot. We did some kind of performance there, but next day or the day after, I don't, I didn't drink much at the time. I don't drink at all now, but I barely drank at the time. I remember I had a nice little thing in scotch, nice little glass of scotch, went into my studio. As we were talking about, went up to my nine or nine, went, Boom, 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 clap, clap, what, five, you know how you can come up with a pattern in five minutes or less. Came up with a whistle song groove, put down a pad, looped it, took another, played this flute solo, came up with, I mean, the, the whole thing has a bass line, the 909, a pad, one keyboard, like the boom, 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 part, flute solo, and the whistle. It's five tracks. It's, it's a very simple thing, and I knocked the whole thing out in 20 minutes. I had just got my um, Mac at the time, so I was playing it into Vision software, opcode Vision. And, um, yeah, I, I threw it on a cassette. And Frankie's coming over. Frankie just got a record deal with um, Virgin. And he came over to my little studio and said, hey, you know, I, well, basically he came over, let's write something for the album. I got an idea for this track called Workout. I'm like, cool. So we do it. We, you know, we get the track together. All good. And right as, you know, at the end of the session, I used to do this, Dave and Frankie, well, Frankie did Dave will tell you at the end of the session or even during the session, I would always play him stuff. Hey, I want to check this out. What do you think? You know, just to get feedback from my peers. So I did that with Frankie. I go, you know, I, this thing I think I'm, you might like. So I popped on the cassette. He goes, yeah, man, this is really cool. He goes, hey, he goes, give me a copy of the cassette and, uh, you know, maybe we'll put a vocal on it and, you know, we use it for the album. I'm like, cool. Well, he took that cassette. He transferred it to Real to Real. And that became the Sound Factory version of the whistle song. And then suddenly, suddenly he said, this is going to make it to the album. He goes, I'm going to do a version with live flute. And, uh, but we want the original version for the, uh, for the 12-inch. So I basically had to recreate it. I, all the moves were done by hand. I, I mean, the, 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 all the drums were going through a Toa keyboard mixer with these little so I was kind of doing it like a DJ, just kind of up and down, you know, on the kick drum and 
uh, making all the uh, the cuts and the uh, and stuff like that, and recreated it to a little Dat Walkman, this little Iowa Dat Walkman that I think Satoshi had brought back from Japan for me. You couldn't get them in America, and they had these little little Dat Walkman machines, and I recorded to that, and that was the version that was on the twelve inch. So let me ask a little bit closer now. What made the flute sound? <laughs> Believe it or not, it is a, it is, it was the rack version, but it's a, it's a Yamaha DX7, a terrible, terrible flute sound, but bathed in so much reverb that it had a vibe. It's all about you the reverb. Everyone? He used a Yamaha DX7 from 84. <laughs> it's it's a terrible, if you listen to the, the actual flute sound on its own, you go, man, that doesn't sound like a flute. <laughs> it barely, you know, just sounds like this little digital grainy thing, sine wave. Right. <clears throat> but, but yeah, I mean, and the, the whistle sound was a preset in the ESQ1 by Insonic. It was, I remember it was called Two, Number Two, Cool. And uh, yeah. And then I used it. It was a, a Juno 60, which I still have sitting right next to me right here. For the bass and uh, Super Jupiter for the punk 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 square sounding bass sounds right there from the Roland Juno. Very good. I, I still use it now. I use almost every Def Mix record I did either had that or believe it or not, I had some patches in the DX7 I used. Like uh, Inner City, What You're Gonna Do About Lovin', Frank um, David's version of Tears, which was one of the first sessions I did with David. That was a DX7 bass. Um, had a different vibe to it. But um, I'd say 80% of the stuff I did, and even Satoshi very often used the Juno 60 for bass. But uh, yeah, that's, that's how the whistle song happened. And then Frankie did, <clears throat> got Paul Shapiro in to do a live, uh, live flute. Excuse me. <clears throat> no frog in my throat from playing all that flute. Um, and he did his version. And Peter Schwartz did a little strings at the top. And between the two versions, pretty much covered the basis for what DJs wanted for that record. You know, but he, now, he, he, now, if I remember correctly, maybe you can, now because this just came to my mind, there was an argument with Paul Shapiro after the record came out and became a huge hit. Because remember, Nesty used it and that Paul felt that he should have got some. I don't know if this is true. This is what I remember hearing in New York at that time. Paul felt that he should have got a piece of the publishing because he replayed he 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 basically replayed the part or he changed some of it in the version he played. Is that true? Yeah, well, Paul freestyled. He's he he he's he did a solo. It was a solo. And honestly, if I got I mean, I Paul never expressed this to me. And then we're still tight now. Um, but you know, it's when you're hired as a soloist on a record to do a solo, you're usually not counted in on the publishing. You're not, you're just not like if I got publishing for every piano solo I've done on a record, that would be kind of cool. That being said, the, if you want to look at it this way, the, uh, the, uh, whistle song was the flute was the verse, the whistle was the chorus. and. Back then, it was like these days, if you do a remix, you can actually get publishing for that remix. Whereas back in the day, there, there wasn't really, it wasn't 
a um, a thing yet where basically the writers of the original track kept the publishing. That was that. There was no divvying up the publishing for different versions. But now, if times were different now, I could see Paul um, asking for and dutifully receiving a piece of the publishing for that version with the live flute. Yeah, I think I remember hearing that. And then I also then realized at that time, Judy Weinstein, who was the manager of Frankie and David and Defnix, uh, one of the owners, of course, uh, principal owner, she fought to change the wording on the remixes from her, from that point, that she wanted to be reproduced and remixed because she wanted her guys to get a piece of that, um, of the publishing. Yeah. Those are all points. She was able to somehow negotiate that with the majors because up until that point, well, there was no such thing you getting anything except the straight pay. Yep, yep. Now, to get, yeah. and, and I remember there was a um, a panel that was on at WMC, a producer remixer panel, and Manny Lehman, I believe, was the moderator. I was there. I remember that. Yeah, and I remember we we talked about it, and we all decided that it should be remix produced by blah blah blah. And that ended up becoming the standard after that. Whether you got points for it was, you know, questionable. But at least you got, um, because remixing back in the day, you look at a Led Zeppelin album and it said remixed by that, this person. It actually means that they took the master tapes and just mixed them differently than they were originally mixed, you know, sonically. They just did it. And that's what a remix technically is. It is taking something that already existed and mixing it again. It has nothing to do with adding new parts. It has nothing to do with, you know, anything like that. So um, reproduction or, you know, remix produced by at least added another layer of um, truth to what was going on for sure. The thing that I noticed is um, the pecking order. We got tracks, you got tracks, Dave Morales, all of us got tracks, okay? The songs would never lend themselves to be house records, and they wanted us to do these records to make magical in the clubs. So what did that mean when they handed you the new Mariah Carey or something? Say, you know, uh, Dave German or any of these guys back in the day at the majors were calling on us to do remixes. They would say, hey, Eric, I want you to do a remix of such and such or David Morales, for example, whoever it is. And they send the multis over, the multi-tracks. What would happen in that session when you walk in? <laughs> so, you know, give people a bird's eye what that would be like. Well, kind of just talking about that, it's, it's, we used to joke about it because all the, like, you were lucky sometimes, like David got Technotronic, Pump Up the Jam, the remix. It's already a dance record. Great. It's, you're already halfway there, you know what I mean? But to take a pop record, like, like especially guys like, I would joke with, you know, Justin, Richie Jones, Bruce Forrest, we would get these really kind of white bread pop records and they would say, make a house record out of it. Make it cool. <laughs> like, no, make it, wasn't it, cool. Even like a, it wasn't even a soulful vocal or anything that was really, you know, very workable, but we did. We somehow made something workable out of it. Even if it was a, a rock record, we'd make more of a rock dance record out of it or something like that. But, um, yeah, when you say, well, here's a good example of a game changer was when um, 
when David and I did uh, Dream Lover, uh, Mariah Carey. I remember we were upstairs in Quad. Yes. We weren't in the room we usually we were in. And basically, I just gave him 24 to 48 tracks of loops and what we call goobers, all these little parts that to word that I uh, started with Justin Strauss that we called all these little one, two, four bar phrases, call them goobers or goobs. And I gave him 24 tracks of goobs, basically, piano, just like a piano. Dun, dun, dun. That's a one bar loop. Dun, dun, dun. That's all one bar stuff, Dream Lover. And it was in a different key. And David had the foresight to, to bring her in, have her re-sing it in a minor key that was, wasn't even a, rel- a related key. And he took that mess that I gave him and made a great record out of it. You know what I mean? That's, that's, part, that's a lot of how we did records back in the days. I would give them loops. It's almost like sample packs. But... You know, on the but, fly, brother. On the fly. And we would sit there on the, the fly. And, and, and we had, luckily, we had automated consoles. They, they, if we didn't, we had to do it all by hand. If we, when we messed up, we'd have to make a, we'd have to stop the tape and then do it again and edit it back together or whatever. But we had automated consoles. So say if, a, um, a ba- if they wanted to drop the baseline out at a certain point, they would press mute. That would be written into the computer for as long as they had the mute button got going on. So, yeah, I mean, it was a, what I call subtractive mixing, which is very much still how I work. I put more stuff on the record than I want to use. And then I mute everything and then bring in stuff where I need it and mute stuff where I don't. And that was the basic process of making these records as far as the creative side. On the technical side, that was a whole other bag of beans trying to get to lock up stuff and, you know, create click tracks and to have to sync up your MIDI to what was on tape. Sometimes it was relatively easy if it was done with machines and the tape speed on the original. Um, Cause the tape tape machines also had a certain amount of wow and flutter. The speed wasn't a perfect constant. So even that could affect your sync. So provided you got a decent tape, you could create a click track. Maybe maybe the, the record already had a 4-4 kick drum on it. So you could use that, feed it into this box called the SBX-80 by Roland, and you'd be able to sync up. But otherwise, we, we've had to come to the point where we couldn't get anything off tape that worked. So we'd have Bashiri Johnson come in, who was a great percussionist, and do what we call the bash click. He'd come in with a cowbell or a clave and go, the entire record, and we'd use that to sync up with. So that's even before we got to play a note. So the session would start at 10 in the morning, say, 9 in the morning sometimes, um, and we didn't walk in there till 12, 12 plus, because we knew there had to be tape alignments. You had to do all these all this stuff to get the session even going. And then you had to get sync up. So sometimes we'd be calling into the engineer, do we got sync yet? Yeah, you come here in an hour. Cool. We get there in an hour, we be able to get to work. And sometimes I had to be part of creating that sync because there was a lot of tr- troubleshoot. Sometimes it was a team effort to try to <laughs> try to get it all together. But um, yeah, and then as I was saying before, we we lay down parts on tape. Some of them loops. Some of them more 
musical oriented. And very often we would be doing two versions. We would do one version that stuck to the song and the structure. And then we'd lay down a whole bunch of loops for dubs, for break pieces, for other stuff like that. So, so here's, the question that here's the question everybody's always asked. Where did that feel, that piano? Where was that, that you know, because all those records at that time had that big bump, bum, 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 that big piano. What was the inspiration? Who came up with this idea? Like, we're going to do know, it's piano the first thing I remember that I get, you know, the first record I remember with a big fat anthemic piano is Move Your Body by Marshall Jefferson. Um, but then to get to the more like strings of life kind of bouncy pianos, hard to say. I, me I remember the Italians were making a lot of cool records in the late eighties that had these uplifting pianos and, and, the, and the English too. So I'm not sure who first came up with that and how I incorporated it into my sound and how, because I still do that, that same bounce on my pianos and my roads that I've been doing for 35 years. And that kind of feel is still a major part of my sound, whether I do it with a road, because it just helps motor the record along. It, um, don't know. It, 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 I, I'd love to know. I, I'd love someone to do the history to find out where that kind of first big uplifting piano came that wasn't Marshall. You know what I mean? That, that right. had that. Who was, more, right. more, what record was that record that it says, I want to I want to do something that, you know, has that feel? Because once that feel came part of the, the house music sound, a lot of people were jumping on that piano sound. A lot. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I don't know if I jumped on someone else's or if it just came naturally or whatever, but it definitely was a big part of my sound and still is. You mean even and, in Vogue, you can hear it in Vogue. I mean, you hear it all the records, yeah. you hear it know that piano, that, that feel. And we were all doing it. And we were all, and at the time we were trying to find the best piano for that. And we had the emulator piano. That was the one that was used on all the records for a while. Then the M1 came out and the Proteus. And then we had started having more and more choices, but it was all the emulator piano first. And then the M1 and the Proteus. Those three. Oh, I had the budget for an emulator, for God's sake. That was expensive. No, you were at a studio. Only we were at a studio. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Tell people how expensive that keyboard was back in the day. Oh, yeah. It was like five grand, something like that. Yeah. And, but, and then we had, but then we had, I had the emulator piano sampled for the S1000 and the S900 even. So, you know, we, we dumbed them down and used them as well. Um, the... But that would be a good thing for comments. If anyone knows, like for Facebook and for when this ends up on YouTube, leave comments on where, like what the first record you heard that had that that big piano break in it. Well, maybe. I'll tell you one. Do you know CC Peniston with Hurley's mixes? You heard it. Yeah, Steve Sook Hurley was big with that Chicago piano sound. Then East Smooth was back to Hurley again. Was <laughs> under on the Hurley. East Smooth was doing it. So yeah, but there's yeah. got to be that one record where everybody goes, man, that piano's the. I want that piano sound. You know what I'm saying? Yep. I got to give Dave Morales a lot of credit, and we all were envious of that too. Like he got Mariah Carey to agree to come in and redo that vocal. That was incredible for its time. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was, a, you know, I, I was, 
pleasantly shocked with the results because when I gave them, I was like, good luck, brother. You're right. Here's- this is on you now, man. This is on you. <laughs> you got it. You got a lot of tools to work with, but it's a bit of a mess. And, you know, but, you know, as usual, I mean, you know, we did that a lot. I, I would give them a whole bunch of things and a lot of things weren't even used, but that's, and that's the way I still work with David and a lot of people. I give them a whole bunch of stuff and they pick and choose what they, you know, you're better off having more, especially when you're working remotely. And in those days, even though we were working in the room together, I would leave and I was gone and they were in the middle of the mix. It wasn't like, oh man, we need another part now. So you always have to try to give a little more than you thought they might end up, you know, needing. Yeah. You got to think outside the box. Maybe they'll need this. Maybe they'll need that. Maybe they won't need this. A lot of stuff. In fact, you probably have about 25 other records that come out of that one session. If you were to take one <laughs> part. <laughs> it could, could, it definitely could. You could definitely make more than one record out of a lot of those sessions. Um, yeah. I mean, I think also at the time, I think I started producing and making my own house records by 87, 88, you know, like a year or two into it, I was starting to do my own stuff. And at that point, I also had a feel for what the producer is going to want too, because I was making my own records. So I think that also helped, you know, kind of me have a feel for what other DJs would want on their records. Well, you said this perfectly well. You went to the club, not to dance, but to study like a laboratory. So you're listening, watching to see what moved their feet. And I'm like every good producer who has musical training says, Hmm, I'm going to try that. Right. Yep. And watching them also watching the DJs and learning how they did what they did on the technical side is how I learned that, you know, I learned how to DJ by watching Mark Kamen's, David Morales, Louis Vega, Justin Strauss, Roger Sanchez. Just kind of sitting in the watching them and we're going, okay, that makes sense. That's cool. Okay, that's cool. Yeah. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, doesn't make okay. sense musically, but it makes that's sense. Yeah, it exactly. makes sense to the dance floor. Yeah, yeah. And, and wait a second, you got two records, the same records on this, two different turntables, and you're taking this record and extending it by eight bars every time. Wow, I didn't realize you could do that. Cool. You know, I learned all these kind of stuff. I mean, now we get to hit loop and do what we want. But back then you had to, you know, I remember the first time I heard Louie play my remix of uh, She's So Heavy, Groove Collective. He did just that. He he had two records playing one section apart. Okay. Hello? Yeah, we lost yeah, I got, visual. I got a car. I call to let, me, let me just hit, let me just hit decline. Those that don't know that record, She's So Heavy was one of the hottest, hottest, Jazzy house records of its time. My God, mid nineties. I remember it so. I played the hell out of it myself. We all did. Yeah, Kill- yeah. But killer that was the first time I noticed that happening. Was you know? I mean, I know people did it, but it, when it's your own record, you really hear it. You know what I mean? So right, because you expect something to come in and it doesn't. <laughs> You're like, wait a minute, I didn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, and but I go, you know what? And the crowd screams, and you go. Okay, I get it. Now it's dope. <laughs> yeah. right. I didn't do that, but it's dope. And maybe I should have done that. <laughs> we'll do that on the next one. Yeah, exactly. Because that's what you want to do. And uh, many times I heard Larry Levan do stuff too. And you say, the, the, and, and even to this day, as I'm making records, and then you probably you go back in time in your mind to what you saw. 
and you're trying to update it to fit in now. If you know what I yeah. mean? You, 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 you go in the memory bank and go, that worked so great back then. But if I do this to it now, holy smoke, this could be like, like a new kinetic energy that I just created. Meanwhile, it's old stuff that we know that works. It's just, it's good. It's right. You know, like you said, 35 yeah. years, you've been playing that keyboard, the certain type of bounce that you know that it works religiously. And also, we also say, oh, that's Eric Copper. <laughs> we know it's you right away. I can hear it right away. It's like, it's like you should sign your name. It's like, boom, right there. So on the, on the timeline, you know, that was, of course, She's So Heavy's hot. You really, you're doing a lot of great stuff at that time. You had your curly, crazy hair. Remember in those days? <laughs> <laughs> it's curly and crazy again. It's just now tamed and slicked back with a pony. Yeah, I mean, back then it was it's like. Back to where it used to be. It's, it's yeah, crazy. And it was like you had a wild, you had a wild hairdo. Um, let me think now. So She's So Heavy. Well, it's funny you met, but at, at that, it's funny how you, I always say you are what your last record is. Because when I say I, when I did the RuPaul album, I had every drag queen in the world coming to me to try to produce or remix their record. When I did the, the Groove Collector record, anything with a horn came my way. <laughs> so it's just funny how I, I never, I, I forgot who said it, but I'll never forget that phrase. You are what your last record is. It's true. Or less big records. Or you're as good as your last record. Yeah. So if your, your last, last big record sucked, if your last record really went bad, guess what? Nobody's calling you. <laughs> well, that's why you got to constantly have a flow of material out there so you can, because uh, you never know what's going to hit. You can't, you know, you're going to have a record. This is the bomb. This is amazing. And it, you don't get the response you expected. And then you, you do this thing in 20 minutes and boom, you know. So, so of know. course, we had this legacy and death mix and all that. Eric, you went on to do amazing things. I don't know what year you decided to set up Director's Cut. You're going to have to tell everybody that. When you and Frankie reformed this yeah. whole legacy again to try it again. I remember you were telling us you were doing it. Yep. Well, what ended up happening was, obviously, you know, anyone who knows, Frankie lost part of his leg. Yeah, he had an operation and a prosthetic put in. And this was, I'm guessing, around 2006, seven ish And there was a record. Frankie had been out of the studio thing for a little while. He had done a few things. He had set up his label, Noise. And we did, uh, you know, Keep On Moving and a few. He put out an album. And we did some cool stuff for that. Did a 2005 version of the Whistle Song. And um, he called me. He was, he was recovering and he said, this, this record that, um, DFA has been trying to get me to do for about a year now, but my health has been, you know, and I, I it, it, it's a, it's a, this record is very different. You know, it's not an easy fit. And it was Hercules and Love Affair blind. And he goes, he goes, and he goes, I'm in Chicago. You're in New York. I ain't going anywhere because I'm recovering. Um, can we work remotely? And I'm like, yeah. And this is before the days people were really working remotely a lot. You know, that's much more a thing of now, especially with COVID. But, you know, people have been working that way pretty much for the past 10 years, pretty uh, on the regular. So um, that was the first record that we did in that way. And the concept was, you know, I was thinking, you know, what can we do with this record? So I, I was like, 
what if we take the sound that we did in the 90s? That big, lush pads, you know, the, the, the sound that we created in the late 80s and early 90s. And fuse that with the sound that um, you, meaning Frankie, you did before we, we were, started working together. That more electronic sound that you were doing in Chicago. And that's what Blind, you know, Blind has that little, boop, 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 that little like a tallow disco line in it. And it has the big lush pads. And that was kind of what I always called the first unofficial director's cut record. We started working remotely. We did a few more. And by 2009, um, Frankie was getting around. He was, you know, rocking and DJing. And, and the work was starting to flow. And he was like, you know, at this point, he goes, let's just form a partnership. It was his idea to do director's cut. He goes, you deserve it. There's strength in numbers. Also, you know, he goes, you've got your fan base, I got mine. And let's create something based on this, this sound that we've been doing that has potential for bigger, how can I say, bigger room? Like, you know, we, we talk about big room music. The sound of Director's Cut was, we didn't really try so hard. It just happened organically that the sound could be played in a big club as well as a small lounge and have equal effect, which not all music, you know, has that kind of vibe. So, um, and sonically, we made sure that it sounded big. It had a, a you know, strong production values to it. Um, even when we wanted it more raw, when we did the more sample-based records, we still made sure it had that, that kind of stamp of, of, bigness to it <laughs> um so yeah that's how director's cut came around and at the beginning the label still were calling it you know frankie knuckles and he would fight them you know bless him no this is director's cut frankie knuckles and eric Cuffer. that's how it needs to be built and uh you know he was very benevolent for that uh, a few before that like um mark Hayman's gave me co-credit after us working together a few times and francois same uh, Francois did a lot. We did a lot of work together in the nineties. Uh, he was another one who was a huge influence on me musically. And he's and, like a scientist. I find with him, he's like <laughs> scientific. Out of oh yeah, I, I learned oh, so yeah. much from Francois. Francois is yeah. very technical when you talk with him. Absolutely, I always, always would ask him to be on my panel in Miami because he was such a great asset to uh, to that. And he, he he gets deep. You know, he gets deep. Was that the panel that Frankie and them had an argument over the nun <laughs> machine or something? Because I remember Frankie got angry at, at Francois, and I was there at that one too. I don't think that was on my thing, was it? Maybe it was because yeah. I remember Francois was in the audience. You know, Francois speaks, and the nine oh nine drum machine is on every track. <laughs> no, that that wouldn't have been. That wouldn't have been, that was. On I don't the know if it's that one. But I remember my, that, my, my thing was a workshop. Frankie over that. Yeah, my okay. thing was a workshop. Something and like it would, no, and it wasn't. Not, no, it was a, a discussion. Yeah, it must have been the producer panel. But um, yeah, yeah. Now again, Francois was a major influence and still is. We just did a did a great record the other day. So, um, but he was also one of the first to give me, you know, equal billing on the records. And you didn't have but to ask Frankie for that, right? He felt that he needed to do that, right? That was all. Everybody who's done that with me has done it on their own accord. I didn't say, hey man, 
you know, I, I was happy to be a keyboard player and, you know, be, I'm a worker bee, man. You know, I, I do what I do, but, you know, I'll gladly take the credit when, uh, I mean, this when is the guy that says I don't really play the keyboards. It's funny. I love when you say that. I don't really play the keyboards, but I'm the keyboard player. It's crazy because I know my other friend, Mike, that's the, I don't play the bass, but I play the bass. It's like, okay, I get it. You don't play the yeah, keyboards. I've got records already with keyboards. Crazy. I, I'm, I would say I'm not a piano player per se. You know what I mean? That's where the, the difference is. I'm more of a synthesis. I could play the organ and I could play the piano, but I'm not like like a Terry Burtz. This guy. Well, Joey Moss. Those guys are Joe, they're real. Yeah. Programmers yeah. and keyboard players, you're like, holy sh smokes. Incredible. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But I'm good at the two-note bass line. <laughs> what can I say? You know, it's funny when you mentioned that DX7, because back in those days, I was using the Yamaha FB01, too. Which yeah. is the FM synthesis of that DX7. That bass. I know the bass you use. I know, because I. it's like, there's a certain de facto to make those records what they had to sound like. And what you things you said we all were in the same game, playing it differently, but we were all getting that same ending, you know, yep. musically speaking. It's incredible. We, we're about the, the you're bro. You're like a you're a heritage item, bro. You're you're the you're you are the, the, the amount of of things that you've done, the amount of um, great records you produced, remixed, played keys on, assisted, whatever. I mean, what you've experienced working with other guys and Lord knows how many people you probably taught along the way too because you had guys next to you working that were sponging as well. I mean, I, I don't even know who that would be, but I know this. Well, that's what I'm saying. We all, we all came up together. We all nurtured each other. You know what I mean? So, you know, like David learned from, from Frankie and all the engineers and, you know, I learned from David and David learned from me. And it's just, we all just kind of came up together. It was, it was, it was quite a, quite a thing. Was there any was sharing and you weren't like, you weren't trying to share. You just naturally were sharing because you were creating something that hadn't really been done before. One of the best director cuts records I remember is that Fable record, Lil Lewis that you guys mixed. Woo! In my top three, for sure. I got to give it to you on that one, brother. That's as top as top goes, man. That was one of the few piano solos that I'm very happy with. See what I'm saying? Let's do that again. Not a piano player, but I played the piano solo. I love that. There you go. I might have, though. I might have gone as far as sometimes there's certain keys I play better in and don't. So I will transpose the piano to play in a key that I'm more comfortable with. So I might've done that with that. I might not. It might've been in a key that was already cool for me, but um, yeah, that, that one, that one came out nice. Um, it was, and it's again, it's a, it's a weird record that it's one of those records that's kind of hard to find the one on, you know what I mean? Cause the way the, the way the record's phrased, I mean, it, it's obvious sometimes, but it's not obvious all the time. It has a certain free flow to it. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's just a beautiful record to work with. If, the easiest thing, you know, when you get a great record, you know how it is. It makes the, re the remix just happens by itself almost. When you're struggling, when, when a record isn't, you know, it's a tough one, or if you're doing a classic and you're trying to give it a, a spin of its own, that can be difficult too. But Fable, I mean, the record was great. The original version was cool, but it, it, to me, 
it needed just that push to get be a great dance record. You know, it was a beautiful song. That I think I used the strings from the original. I added a few strings, but um, a lot of the elements were already there. A lot of the elements were already there. Incredible. That, you know, Lil Lewis, too, he's another great uh, producer. You know, he's, oh, he's done ridiculous. I mean, one of the first to do the Club Lonely album, Crosses Over, French Kiss. I mean, there's so many records I can name from him, too, that's just Black Magic Freedom. His songs are always on, on hot. They're always on hot. Tell me, yep. one, tell me one thing that you remember as far as one of the worst records that you handed. And you guys took something that we say polish a turd. <laughs> polishing a turd. Come on, it's been a lot of years, 35, 40 years already. I know. And honestly, I've, I've done over 2,000 records. So it's to, to even pick one. Well, it's it's always one that you go, Jesus, God, help me. I would never want to touch that again. But you guys, it became something that you went, holy smoke. Who would have thought that turned out like that? You know, I can't think of one offhand that turned out to be the bomb. But I can think of, uh, like, <laughs> like working with Richie Jones on a really bad cover of Do You Think I'm Sexy um, and making oh. a decent record out. We made something playable out of it. It's like, holy, you know, that was the thing. Let's, could we, and even major labels, sometimes they would put all this money into a project and they had nothing at the end of the day. And they go, can you somehow, <laughs> you know, can you somehow make something from this? And that would be our job sometimes. As, as you say, turd polishing, you know, I've worked with, with, and I'm not going to call them turds at all, but it's just to completely re, like I've done some stuff with Ariana Grande recently where I've taken these mid, mental down tempo pop songs and made them into viable club records. And that's a challenge, man. And sometimes it comes together easily. Sometimes it doesn't. And you have to decide whether to slow down the vocal or speed it up to make it halftime or, you know, there are a lot of choices involved, but I've been very often, I am the guy that they go, man, this record's unremixable. Give it to Copper. He'll do something with it. He'll I make am that record. Go to him. Don't worry. He'll make it right. Don't worry. And I'm like, thanks a heap. You know, I appreciate the work, but it's like, you know, it's like sometimes it's, a, it's quite difficult. It's quite difficult. So you become worked a doctor, of, basically, you know, and things are pretty, when things are pretty much the flat line and they're like calling you, then they turn that flat line into something, get, resuscitate this thing, for God's sake, bring it back, exactly. to life, help us. Help. And then you got, yeah, and then you got guys like Brad LeBeau who take those dance records and get, make it a number one billboard record where the pop didn't even hit the top 100. So. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? It's yeah. great. Even Bobby Shore. Bobby Shore too. Bobby. Yeah. Bobby's the thing. It's it's the um it's the it's trying to make something out of out of nothing. Frank Cirillo. They take the dance out of nowhere. They find to get that to number one. It's incredible. Yeah, I, and that was a big thing you remember back in the eighties and nineties. It's like we can't do with this anything with this artist. Maybe we can get him a dance record. <laughs> Maybe we can make a dance record out of it. And that was like a last resort sometimes, you know. Dance, dance music has always been the bastard child of the uh, music industry in many ways, but it's... Well, uh, the reason why, it's the least money they spend and the biggest turnaround in cash. They always get back. Yeah. 
So it's a very low investment with a high return. And they don't have to do nothing. Most of it was word of mouth. Most of us doing it ourselves. And we would make the records, give it to our friends. Our friends would start rocking the records. Records started becoming on their own a big thing. And next thing they know, the major's going, oh, wow, wait a minute. Well, wait a minute. We got to make a video with dance mix? What? <laughs> wait a minute. What are, you, what are you talking about? We couldn't get this thing teething off the ground in pop world, but the dance, wait a minute. We got MTV rotation now? Or MTV's calling going, we want the, uh, is there a, uh, uh, a video for this thing? What video? They didn't want to put the record out as a release. You're talking about a video now? It's like, how many times that happened with our records? Crazy. Oh, yeah. It's a grassroots industry and it still is. And that's why I love it so much. It's, you could really do your own thing. You could make your own everything. You could, you know, even back in the days of the majors, you could put out indie stuff yourself. And you'd go to the WMC, you would go, you'd hand out records, you go to the clubs, you give it out, self-promote, maybe hire or, you know, hire an independent promoter, whatever, do what you can on your own level. It's always been and still is a, a uh, grassroots thing. And, you know, it's been the gift that keeps on giving, man. You know, oh, as much out. as I've done other styles of music, house music's always there for me and calling me back all the time. It's like it's like she's always there for you. You go to the top, and then you come back to her. She's like, "I'm still here. I'm waiting think for you." Of, think about how many genres have come and gone. You had new wave. You had like first wave of punk, which is the real punk. <laughs> you have disco. You have uh, dance or You have you have all the freestyle. You have all these things. Who would have thought? 35 plus years ago when we were making house records, the house would even be a genre still. It has endured and will continue to endure like jazz, like rock and roll, quote unquote, like, like anything. It seems like it's a force that is never going to go away. And who would have thought that back in 1988, right? We thought, okay. Even even the nineteen ninety five, we were thinking, yeah, how long is this gonna last? Yeah, it's twenty five years later. We're still making those same records, but with a fresh coat of paint, a new approach, right? And sometimes not. Sometimes we're trying to get the sound of the nineties again, you know, because but, that's what everybody's asking for. Can you do it yeah. then? What? When they first <laughs> asked me that question, I was like, "What? Wait a minute!" Because we've been hearing EDM for so long, I, I had to get the cut out of me. I went, "What? <laughs> you want me to do what?" Why? And I asked that question, oh, because that's so cool. Yeah, but for the last 10 years, we've been hearing David Guetta and Calvin Harris and Swedish House Mafia and all these big, big, big rooms, like you said before, big room style records crossing into mainstream charts. That our music that had any kind of soulful minor chord in it was like, oh, big deep <laughs> vocal. Whoa, that's old school, right, Eric? Come on. Yep, yep. No, but now it's, uh, and you had certain people, um, like guys like Disclosure in the UK and MK as well, breaking into the pop charts in the past 10 years. And that was a big thing, I think. I think a lot of training. I live right by a train station. That's nice. Diesel. I love it. I love Me too. It. I love that. That's nice. Diesel foghorn. Air horn. Yep. So, um, 
So while we take the horn break, don't forget, everybody, make sure you order your shirts. Come on now, <laughs> help us out here. True House Stories, Current Power Records. Thank God house music is back. We got more stuff coming in. And Eric's going to come right back at you because I heard that horn. He's like, I got to take a point. Come on now. Order up. It's Christmas time. Santa's here. Some cheer. <laughs> but you know what? You said it right. Everybody wanted that golden era sound. And why not go to the guys that were part of that? Why not call you? You know? Why not? Yeah, I'm, I'm working more. I'm working as much, if not more now than I ever did, which is wild because, you know, I'm not, I'm not a kid anymore. I'm yes, you 58 are. years old. <laughs> so, uh, so, wait a minute, you got a retirement package in place right now? Are you taking it easy? Hells no. Hells no. <laughs> we ain't getting paid like we used to get paid. Oh, that's if I did, I have a retirement package. That's the difference. That's a big difference. Yeah, we're getting, you know, 10 cents on the dollar very often, you know, on a good day. Uh, <laughs> were you out but, DJing you know, again? Were you out before pre-pandemic? Were you traveling? Or? Yeah, man, I, I did a I, I did a gig on March first. That was my last gig. With oddly enough, it was the first time Justin Strauss and I had ever played together. And we did we played together at Laban. You know, um, at <gasps> that uh, was the week before Christine's I was supposed party. to play on the Sunday party, the Birdcage. Yeah, party. Christine's party. Oh, yeah, yes, they closed it on my that night. party is the bomb, man. It was so much fun. And I remember even on that night, we were, we heard about this, you know, COVID thing. Didn't have a name. It wasn't called COVID yet, but we heard about it. Now I, I always carry hand sanitizer to all like WMC and everything like that. So I had mine with me anyway, a little bottle in my pocket. But I remember the crowd was a little light that night and there was a vibe. And that was one of the last times I set foot in New York City. But yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, I was playing, um, I had uh, been in San Francisco in November. I'd taken a break from the world touring thing for a while and actually was just about to, 2020 was going to be back, Eric back on the road. That didn't quite you work thought, out. You thought, <laughs> Eric, you know I what? Bunch of, you jinxed us. You coming up. back on the road. You're the reason why this damn thing happened. You jinxed all of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I had I had uh, stuff lined up, and uh, but you know I I already have a few things lined up for next summer. Let's see if that happens by 2022. I expect things to be in full steam by the end of next year. I think things will be pretty cool too. The summer is still on the fence, you know. Summer's still on the fence. Can you tell us now for all the young lads out there? They all want to know. What sequencing software are you using today? We know we heard mentioned Vision back in the day. What is yeah. your working? What is your work uh, ethic today? What do you? What's in front of you? I know I see an Apple laptop behind you and stuff. So what? What are you doing these days? Logical. Yeah. Well, what? Ba ba uh, I'll backtrack to say I all the early records were sequenced on the ESQ one eight track sequencer. All the early Defnix stuff where we took that we dumped it on tape. Then Opcode Vision came out, or and I got a Mac because I didn't like Performer. That was the other big pro program at the time. Then I remember one day I'm in the studio. We've I had Pro Tools, the earliest version. It was a four-track system, and I had a Studio Vision, which was the first sequencer to incorporate audio into it. 
So you had four tracks of audio. So you could put your vocals in there and then sequence and make your tracks. But the company Opcode stopped supporting life. They basically were going out of business. The guy, Dave Oppenheimer, ended up working for Apple. And um, I was chucked into, I was in the middle of an album project, making a rock album for A&M. And I had the Pro Tools hardware. So I started using Pro Tools. And even on those early versions, uh, and at, at that time I was sequencing in Vision and you had a thing where you could lock the IAC driver, lock two programs. But then I shot, just said, you know what? I don't need fancy sequencing software. I'll play the notes. If I want to make them longer, I can make them longer. I could do that in Vision, in uh, Pro Tools, sorry. If I want to make the, turn the velocity up or down, I could do that. Cut and paste, I could do that. So I started doing all my sequencing in Pro Tools in version four and five, even when it had the most basic stuff. Because I didn't need, I don't use all this generated crazy stuff. You know, I play the parts in, I quantize them, get rid of the bad notes, shorten this one, turn the velocity up on that one, whatever. So I've been using Pro Tools since. And um, first of all, I like the way it sounds. Second of all, everything I've seen, the editing, of what you can do, the grace and speed of audio editing seems to be the best out there. At the end of the day, I always say it doesn't matter what you're using. Use use what your best friend has so you can call him when you're learning it at you know midnight saying, yo, that's a good one. This? I like that. That's a good one. Yeah. Use what your best friend uses, right? Yeah, and 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 he knows this. And he knows this. <laughs> he knows. Um yeah, and uh, but yeah, but Pro Tools works great for me. It's it's for for guys like me who are who use tape. It seems to be the natural extension of that. You take a track, assign an input, sign an output, put it record. Happy days, you know. And again, once again, the editing. I love the way it edits audio. And uh, yeah, it's been my. Uh, I've been making my records on Pro Tools for twenty years now. So then here's what the question is of all the professionals like myself. You used 1176s, compressors, you know, all the typical stuff you found in quad. Yeah, one right here, yeah. <laughs> right. You wind up using them now originally in the box or using them now as digital? Um, I'm using mostly in the box. I, I'm a UAD fanatic now. Um, the UAD software emulations, they made the 1176. Their 1176s sound pretty damn close to the original box. Um, they even, I even use their plugins. Sometimes I will just put a pull tech across something, but not even turn any knobs because you hear the sound of the circuitry. You hear the tubes, you hear the transformers. I don't hear that in most other plugins. I haven't tried all of them. I haven't tried the slate stuff. Slate's compared to I, the wave I, stuff. I, waves, I use wave stuff all the time. I love them. Me too. Me too. And they, and they behave like the hardware. I use, Sometimes I don't want the sound change so much, but I want the behavior of that EQ, say like an API graphic. I love the Waves one because it doesn't really change the sound of it, but it behaves like it. When I put the API graphic of the, um, the UAD software, you hear it changes the sound immediately. It colors the sound for better or for worse. So all these tools and outboard sometimes I'll use still, 
um, especially for mastering. I'm starting to use more out. I'm doing a lot of mastering. I oh, yeah. Started. I saw your advertisement. Congratulations yeah. on your mastering. Yes. And a new business coming soon as well. But the mastering thing, I mean, I've been mastering my own records for God knows how long. And then along the way, other people have been asking me to master. So it seems just like a natural progression. But how the hell did we become mastering engineers when we always used to send out our stuff to Frankfurt Wayne and everybody? You yeah, know? Exactly. How's well, that, you know, that happened? I mean, I, I had my guys, you know, you had Chris, Chris Geringer, Tom Coyne, may rest in peace, Herb Powers and these guys. Herb, and back. When I, I had my label and my, and my label was pressed and distributed, Syria originally was pressed and distributed in the UK. So I couldn't attend the mastering sessions. But we had the top guy, the top engineers at Abbey Road, and very often I'd get a cut and I would not like it. And I had to send it back a few times. So, I mean, I, I still find that master engineers tend to overpronounce the mid-range to the point of harshness and ear bleed because they're going for maximum volume. I don't want that. The, you know, I want to hear all the frequencies. I want to hear balance. You know, I want to hear. So you don't believe that the brick, the red brick is good. You know, like we all got to use the red brick, but to a certain extent, but I know I, I try to leave. Listen, I try to go for as much volume as I can without compromising the audio quality. If I get to a point where I go, no, this is compromising. That's when I back off. So at least, you know, I'm, I'm going for as much volume as I can get and there's a lot of tips and tricks to doing that there's a lot of tools we have digitally and in the analog world to do that but um at the end of the day if you can get the brick and it still sounds great cool but i remember people coming to me for certain um certain stuff i did with director's cut where the masterings they were going dude the master that we love this record but the mastering doesn't sound good. It's distorting. It's clipping. Can you give me the original file? And I would do it. They would go, yeah, thank you. It's a, now we can play it. Because a lot of these engineers, especially ones that some big labels use, these mastering guys, are just distorting the crap out of things. And it just does not sound good. We have trim controls. We have volume controls. If a record's a little lower, we could see the wave compared to one on the other. We could see if we're using a CDJ, or if we're using Traptor, we can even see that we're going to have to crank up the volume a little bit. So to me, there's no excuse for a DJ saying, oh, that record's too low. Turn it up and listen how good it might sound, you know? So. So, so basically, sonic quality over loudness. Absolutely. And you, you listen, talk to the best engineers out there. And they'll say the same thing. They'll all say the same thing. And that's, you know, I, I read. I work with some of them. I read Tape Hop magazine all the time. I don't know if, if you know Tape Hop, it's all like for independent producers and, uh, and people. It, it's a real, you know, gear geek magazine. And I, I'm a gear geek to the fullest. And yeah, man, I, I read and everything that I've been doing, it's like, it, it, it solidifies what I've been doing. It's like, okay, he's doing that too. Cool. You know, I get, I'm not alone in my thought, my thought process here. Yeah. You listen to guys like Glenn Johns. They don't want their stuff overly limited. They made a great mix 
make it as loud as you can. Don't be too heavy with the limiter. If there's any problems with EQ or if I'm there, fix it, change it. But, you know, I've made it sound that way for a reason. So. Unbelievable, Eric. You're unbelievable. <laughs> you are truly scientific. Science! Science! <laughs> Science! Thomas told me. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, we can, go, we can get real technical, but I can't get too technical because we got a lot of layman people I'm listening in. Sure. Uh, I just want to tell everybody, most importantly, listen to what Eric said. Listen to what you're hearing. If it's clipping and distorting, for God's sake, lower it down. Don't let red be part of your, you know, your color. Should be within yellow, maybe yellow. Don't go red, you know. Stay in the green when you're looking yeah. at when you're, especially. But here's a very important question: When you're producing your own stuff and you've written it and produced it, work with the singer, you know. And now you're at the finalized mixing. How do you play mastering guy? You know, because you're so <laughs> in depth. You know, we said you used to joke about this, like the Jamaican guy. He's got 20 jobs. It's the same guy. <laughs> you got like three, you got like seven jobs going on, writer. Because people, when you're dealing with vocalists and talent, you also have to be therapists. Eric will tell you, we've all been in those situations where we've had hours, we didn't even hit a play button. We had to talk about what was going on in their world, help them bring them out of some sort of issue that was going on. It wasn't just like we always jumped in the studio and go, right, hit play, record. No, no, they were coming in. Maybe they got robbed. You don't know what went on in their lives. The next thing I know, okay, let's wait. Whoa, 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 slow down. So you're taking into consideration, you have a lot to deal with. You have a lot to deal with your own stuff that's going on, how you're feeling. And then you got to put that stuff aside and be real professional at the same time. And now take on the job of being therapist, friend, uh, writing assistant, you know, whatever your job is and make that work. Or maybe you're angry at the people when you're working in the studio <laughs> because they said something that aggravated you, but because of the professional atmosphere that we're working in, we have to put that aside because for the better of the record, you know, want, we want to see that record come to fruition. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So how do you, after dealing with, as I broke all, because you know, you've been there too, therapist, doctor, friend, uh, advice person, uh, maybe you're giving someone, you know, cash, helping them out, whatever, doing everything along the way. How did the hell you have the, the foresight to say, now I'm going to master this bad, bad boy and step aside from being the producer and mixing guy. Well, two ways. I mean, sometimes I, I'd say at least 50% of the time I master in the last hour of the mix. I actually do mastering across the two bus of the mix. Very often for, for many reasons. First of all, when you're working that way, and you're mastering and you have the mix up, you can make little changes in the mix that will make the mastering perfect rather than feeling, okay, you mixed it down to two, you're in the mastering, 
you know, you're at mastering or you're in a new session that you're mastering off a stereo file. And you're like, man, if I could only just change that, but I'm dealing with this now. Well, you can when you're in the mix. Um, so a lot of the times I'm just doing it then. And very often, you're, I'm a, you know, especially with remixes, I'm in a time constraint. I promised I'd have it to them in the morning. I got to get it to them in the morning. So it's like you just kind of roll up your sleeves and keep going. And um, hope, and then I always listen with a fresh ear in the morning because at, at that time, at the end of the day, you know, you've been listening for a while. Your ears are, are a muscle of sorts. There's muscles involved and they get tired. So you listen in the morning, you do your final tweaks and you send it on. But yeah, to me, it's all part of the picture. That's what I'm saying. It's like, I love mastering other people's stuff. It's so much fun because you're hearing something. Okay, that mix sounds good. Now let me make it sound great. And if that's exactly what you're doing to your own stuff. You go, okay, I got the mix sounding good now. Now, what can I do to make it sound great? To me, that's what the mastering engineer's job is, to make good from good to great, and sometimes from crap to good. <laughs> and check this out, brother, because you have good ears and you have good sense of taste of what's going on. But then there's these companies that call $10 online mastering services. Yeah. Yeah. So what's that all about for you? I'm not, I'm not a fan. You know, most of these are using algorithms. Like, it's like, if you're going to do that, save your money, buy Ozone and use one of their presets, but they're not going to sound good either. Ozone's a great tool. Don't get me wrong. But just to use a preset that says dance music, expect it to work. These, these algorithms like Lander, I think is one of them. I think they're more advanced than that. And some people might have good results with them, but it's not, it's, it's, it's robotic. You're, it doesn't, have musical sensitivity. And that's what I try to bring when I'm mastering stuff. I'm trying to, you know, like if I know the artist wants something to sound lo-fi, I'm going to keep it lo-fi, but still make it try, try to bring out the musicality in the record. You know, these, these are just trying to, I mean, I never use any visual tools, the ones that show frequency spectrums, the ones that there are all these things that cut out things in the mix to make this fit in the mix. I don't, there's some dope things I might be missing out on by not using them, but I know, you know, my, how to equalize and how to compress and how to use these tools to do it the way I do it. And it works fine for me, but I don't use my eyes. You got to use your ears. And that's the problem with these algorithms. They're just computer. It's like looking at something and trying to make it work and trying to make it sound good. You know, well, Eric, you. What's this mastering company called now? The new is it Hysteria? What's the mastering company? Copper Sound Mastering Lab. Copper Sound. It sounds like Mister Rogers. Everyone, Mister Rogers' neighbor. Copper Mastering. Copper Sound. Wow. Awesome. <laughs> uh, congratulations, because I did see you did make a Facebook announcement, and I knew we were having you on. And I wanted you to tell everybody about it. You know, don't be afraid to hit Eric Copper up. He's mastering yeah. now for all yeah. you guys. And he it's on my Facebook page. It's on my Instagram. There's a, it's just the email is just info at coppersoundmasteringlab.com. The guy doesn't sleep. He's up all day, all night. <laughs> <laughs> I better work. God bless, man. Anything more to add? I think we covered a lot of ground, bro. I think that was uh, pretty inclusive, man. Yeah, you know. You, you, you laid it all out for these people. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's always more. There's always more, you know. But there's a lot, a lot of good stuff there. Um, 
We definitely wish you all the success and more to come. Thank you so much. Likewise. Now you're only 38. You got a lot of years ahead of you. <laughs> <laughs> so I tell everybody, I still feel that same feeling in my brain. My brain says we can do this. My body says something else, but my brain <laughs> is definitely still there. With Prevision. Yeah. For those that know Prevision, for over 50 plus, <laughs> those always good you forget names. Take a Prevision. But um, <laughs> you're really awesome, bro. And Thank you so much. And I love the fact that you're doing the show. is a great thing for the uh, house community. It's appreciated. Yeah, we're trying to get, we're trying to get Nile Rogers. Carl Cox agreed. We have next week Mr. John Morales from Eminem. Another legendary, another, another mixer of our 80s crew came back, did it all over again, glitter boxed us out. He's going to tell us all about it next week. And um, happy holidays to you, brother. You too, I man. Love the look. I love the look of this artistic <laughs> doctor. Doctor, doctor, we need you. It's <laughs> my shit, doctor. Please, please, doctor. <laughs> I will fix. I will fix. 